Today on Backroom Politics. No, I thought I did away with that. Today on Backroom Politics, we have developing story coming out of Washington D.C. Bradley Manning is convicted of of several counts, but not the most important count. We're going to talk about the impact on national security and the possible impact on Snowden. We're also going to be talking about the peace talks happening here in Washington, D.C. Hey, why can't Americans stop watching the soap opera involving the Virginia governor's race? We'll talk about that. And hashtag Carlos Danger will have our share of wiener references. That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. That means it's time for the best political roundtable show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio, broadcasting from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of the National Broadcasting Corporation for Government Affairs. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here today. Good to have you. And to my 12 o'clock, he is the longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider. He's a former Undersecretary of Commerce who has served at last count under four presidents. He is a very distinguished and handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hi, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to his left, which she is left of him a lot of times. She is the former general counsel for the House Homeland Security Committee under Betty Thompson, former Obama appointee as general counsel for the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, which is ironic, he is the former executive director of the Maryland Democratic Party, longtime Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And and I am, well, you know what? Hold on here. We've got to take this. Uh, we've got to take this developing news and go over it real quick. Uh, the latest on the leakers saga coming out of Washington. Uh, Bradley Manning, earlier today, was acquitted of the charge of aiding the enemy by a military uh, courts martial judge uh, in Fort Meade, Maryland. He uh, was He was convicted of several other lesser charges, uh, and we'll go over that in a second, but this is a big story which has national security impacts as well as impacts as far as international relations go. Let's first talk about the conviction. Uh, We've got two attorneys here at the table, one of them, Bob Hines. Bob, does it surprise you that he was acquitted on the major charge, which probably would have gotten him life, of aiding the enemy. Does that surprise you? Well, number one, it would have gotten him a light sentence. That's that's just what you get. 
but the the other uh, the other charges, and there were literally a hundred of them, were basically, you know, giving documents away and, and, and publishing them, and, and in effect, that is, uh, and he he has if 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 the judge wants to, uh, he'll serve. 30 or 40 years in prison just on those charges. My guess is it'll be more like 20 years or something like that. But he's going to spend a substantial time of the rest of his life in jail. Uh, but he will it will not be a, a death sentence in effect, a life a life term. Uh, Denise, how about you? Does it surprise you that he was let go on the on the major charge of aiding the enemy? Yes, because it, it, that means that they were not able to prove their argument, and the argument would have to be that there is a nexus between the release. And uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, so, as a lawyer, and, and not only my lawyer, but I'm also a former military lawyer, I'm going to be very curious to see uh, what the judge's decision looks like and how she based her decision uh, to say that you know he did not, or that, that the government's lawyers did not meet their burden. Uh, Alan Moore, go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm certainly no expert here, but what I was reading about this was that that he had tried to uh, to plea bargain this whole issue and agreed to plead guilty to a couple of charges that would have given him uh, some healthy number of years in prison. Uh, the U.S. government uh, said, nope, we're not going to cut that deal. We're going to throw the book at him and we're going we're gonna to basically charge him with treason, with aiding and abetting the enemy. Now, in a, in a statement he made at the beginning of his trial, he explained, he acknowledged what he did, and he explained it very carefully by saying he didn't think this was going to harm the United States, that he thought, though, that it was really important that the world know. And I, and I, and, and my guess is, is that as the judge considered this, uh, again, there's a question, motives matter. They're not dispositive of a, of, of a situation, but they do uh, have an impact. Having said that, of all, the, all the, the great number of charges that he has been found guilty of, supposedly have the potential of 136 years in jail. Now, it remains to be seen, therefore, what a judge decides to do with that. And if, uh, if it's a big number of years, it could, in fact, for all practical purposes, be a life sentence. We'll see what happens. Well, there's a lot of people looking at this right now, Bob Hines, that, that, that say, look, you know, Bradley Manning's not an enemy of the state. Bradley Manning is, in fact, a, a should be looked at as a hero, uh, should be looked at as, as a whistleblower. Uh, it, it's hard to draw that line, particularly when you see somebody in uniform uh, being accused like this. Why are we looking at him as an enemy of the state versus, in fact, what he, in his mind, thinks he did was, in fact, whistleblow on a program that violated American rights? Well... Yeah, but the point is, when you're talking about treason, that's a very specific finding you have to be able to make. And it isn't just that you released information uh, and gave it away. You have to show that you had a deliberate intent to undermine, damage, or hurt the United States. That's what treason is. And that's, that's not the legal term, but that's basically what you have to do. And it's hard to show... Uh, I guess the government doesn't wasn't able to show that because of this release of information, and it's out there, it did not 
do it. It did not alter any of our policies, and it did not appear to our, alter any of the move, movements of our enemies, except to be happy to know that they were all out and we were all embarrassed. And but it didn't give them an advantage in some place, Carl, some way to stop us from doing something or damaging us further. Carl Tubman. In the Snowden discussions, in the Snowden discussions, you know, treason came up, and there was a constitutional lawyer who indicated that. Treason is only used in time of war. That um, um, uh, and then evidently it, there's talk about it with the, the forefathers, etc. Uh, Denise Crack. Well, here's the difference between Bradley Manning and Stoughton, though. Bradley Manning was charged under the UCMJ, the Universe Code of Military Justice, which is similar but not identical to civilian law. Snowden will be tried under civilian law. So, for me. It's very interesting to see that the military decision came out in this way because I can guarantee you they had resources that were unimaginable. Because when you try this type of case in the military, whatever you need, you get. But but there there are some Alan Moore that, that say, look, what what Bradley Manning was doing was in fact invoking his First Amendment rights of free speech. He gave it to a questionable journalistic authority, not unlike any other people that have leaked sensitive information before, and that there are some actually that advocate, hey, look, this is a little bit excessive. Do they have a leg to stand on in this? Well, look, he, some of the charges for which he is guilty is having possession, in his possession, things that he did not have authority to have, A, and B, nor did he have authority to share. So he he's got 30 40 50 counts uh, on on which he is, he, he is guilty. It's not it's not a matter of free speech. You are violating the law for having stuff and sharing stuff and you're awfully kind to Wikipedia, to the WikiLeaks guys to call call them a journalistic source, although they would be happy to 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 think think of themselves that way. Um it it's uh you, you can't go digging around grabbing secrets uh, even under the authorities you have, taking advantage of, of obviously the the Swiss uh, cheese uh, hold system we have now created post 9/11, where in the in the in an effort to share information uh, across agencies, we've made it available across agencies, so lower level people like a Snowden and like a Manning can get access to it. Now the thing that 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 Manning did. He didn't leave the country and uh, and and seek asylum uh, in some of uh, the enemy states of America. Um, and uh, and and we can't say that no damage was done. There was a lot of damage done. Uh, what they were trying to 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 get to convict him of was sharing information that he would know or have reason to believe would find its way to Al Qaeda and could can be helpful to them. And he was basically saying. Nope, uh, I didn't. I, I didn't see that coming, but it did happen. And, and, and to Carl's point about state of war, some people think right now we are in a state of war with Al Qaeda in Afghanistan but, and so on. But Denise Krebs, a former judge and general, what we're looking at here is number one: he, the intent of of, uh, of Bradley Manning wasn't to give out. He, he thought he was just giving out just routine cables between embassies and the foreign operating bases. In his mind, he was not, and his, he has said in court, 
it was not his intention to do harm to national security. He just thought that this would be a way to get news out to the public. In, in civilian court, that might have some standing. Under UCMJ, not a lot of play there. This is because it's such an unusual case. I, I mean, it, it, it's not as if you have these types of cases regularly in the military. You don't have whistleblowers in the military. I mean, well, the Pentagon Papers, people would argue okay. that the Pentagon Papers. It's been almost 40 years since the Pentagon Papers. I mean, to me, the question would be what's the precedent within the, uh, the military system? And, and for those of you that are listening to us, when we're talking about the military system, you know, the civilian courts. But the military has its own military system. It does go up to the Supreme Court, but when court when cases move, they move separately. So you move in a military system and a civilian system. But it's different. But Carl Tubin, a good friend of yours, Dutch Ruppersberger, who is the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee, in a, in a report put out by our friends at Politico. He and uh, Committee Chairman Mike Rogers, Republican out of Michigan, stated that justice has been served today. That, pri quote, private manning harmed our national security, violated the public's trust, and now stands convicted of multiple serious crimes. There is still much work to be done to reduce the ability of criminals like Bradley Manning and Edward Snowden to harm our national security. Is that strong statements coming out of Ruppersberger? I think so. <clears throat> I think... I think Basically, what he's saying is, even though he was acquitted of, of the other charges, is that <clears throat> they've made a point here of, of being fairly harsh on him uh, as a warning to other people who are thinking about doing the same kinds of things. Denise Crop. And I can say that this young man, if he says spend 20, 30, 40 years, is not going to be living the life of luxury. He is going to continue to be a military uh, person. He is going to continue to have to wear the uniform. He is going to be. He will have to continue to um, perform certain duties, and uh, he will be held to a standard that I would argue is much higher than those that are not currently at Fort Leavenworth. Well, I mean, let's also be clear. Uh, Bradley Manning's conviction goes to sentencing phase on Wednesday. Once a sentence is passed down, it will then go in front of the commanding officer in the jurisdiction where he was charged. In this case, uh, Major General Buchanan, who is the head of the Army uh, District of Washington, he, in fact, can lower the sentence if he wishes, but the chances, Denise, of that are happening are... Nil. Nil? Okay. Um, in, the broader, in the broader scheme of this, uh, Alan Moore, in, in your mind and in the mind of what you're seeing here in Washington, did what he released do damage the way that maybe Edward Snowden's did damage? I mean, Edward Snowden's did damage in releasing a very classified NSA intelligence gathering operation. However, it, it just seems the quality of, of, what, uh, of what Manning released to WikiLeaks uh, and Assange do doesn't seem to have the same effect. What big harm came of that? Well, First of all, let's remember, and, and we were talking about him, you know, just wanting to get some information out there. He gathered and released hundreds of thousands of documents. There is no way in God's creation that he could have even read everything that he released. And in fact, you'll recall that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks said 
they looked through all of this stuff and before releasing it, they expunged information that might in fact do harm. Manning didn't do that. He got this stuff. He, I'm sure he had some sense, some crazy sense of what he was releasing and turned it over to, these, uh, to this non-American enterprise that operates offshore. That, that in its own way, in its own mind, was using a little bit of discipline. But there were there were it was information on people who had been our allies behind the scenes in various countries around the world. Lives have been destroyed. Individuals' lives have been destroyed, and and probably in some cases taken. Although I'm not certain of that, because of the information that Bradley Manning released. In the case of the Snowden release, it was a very different enterprise. It said, you know what your government is doing to you? It is gathering an enormous amount of information today. Not yesterday, not last week, not last year, not five years ago. Today, it's gathering all of this stuff. Now, Ron Wyden, senator from Oregon, who sits on the Intelligence Committee and who asked the famous questions in the hearing about whether to, to senior U.S. government official, whether we were collecting anything on millions of Americans, and 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 the answer was no. And then later, after the Snowden release, was uh, oops. Well, what I was thinking when I said no is this, but I wasn't really thinking about this other thing. What 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 Snowden does is he's forcing us to modify some of the mechanisms put in post 9/11 to give us a better ability to identify American, people on American soil who are consorting with the enemy. Now, it's going to trigger, it is triggering now a major debate. We are still waiting for the President of the United States to step forward and say, hey, people, here's what we are doing, here's why, here are the benefits it has provided, and here's why we need to continue it. In the meantime, in that vacuum, you've got odd couples in the Congress, far-left people, pardon, pardon you know, just the characterization, but the, some, some really strong liberal forces who say, we have no business collecting this kind of, uh, of, of, of information, and people on the far right who uh, are also appalled at the collection. So last week, in a vote... That, that, that missed by a handful of votes in the House, they were going to defund this entire effort. It was left-leaning Democrats and a, and, a, and a cohort of Republicans that almost came down with a majority, even though they were getting pushback from the leadership of both parties. It's an odd business right now that we're under. But, Bob Hines, go ahead. Um, with respect to all this information, Gavin, I saw a, an article, I believe, in yesterday's newspaper which absolutely made me stop and think. Apparently, uh, in just the normal court, in whatever they were doing in the past and watching people, there were two of the pilots of the planes that flew on 9-11, two of the pilots who were calling back and forth to um, in the Middle East, and we didn't pick up on it. We had we, we had the, the information about them calling, but we weren't paying attention to what they were doing. Just think about it. If we had had the kind of program we have today, no matter whether you like it or not, 
we probably would have done a great deal differently about 9-11. We probably would have been able to do something about it. I don't say we could have stopped it. We might have stopped half of it. Let me, That's an amazing fact. Let, let, let me ju- let me jump in here, Bob, for a second, because what we're dealing with also is that there's also this idea going back to the Pentagon Papers, going back to other whistleblowers in government. You know, um, you've got the ACLU that's saying that, quote, and this is according to a great story by Josh Gerstein, our friend over at Politico. Uh, Josh is uh, quoting uh, Ben Winsner of the uh, ACLU, saying that Manning already pled guilty to charges of leaking information. It seems clear that the government was seeking to intimidate anyone who might consider revealing valuable information in the future. <clears throat> this also is a big heads up to the media of saying, hey, we're not backing down Excuse me. If you report this information, we're going to hold you accountable, which brings up the whole idea of the AP, Fox News, and other media outlets where they were tapping phones and seeking, I'm sorry, seeking phone records from these news organizations in relation to this Snowden and other classified operations. Does the media have a problem now as far as being able to report what is news? And do they are they now going to be more hesitant to report leaked information? I don't think so. I the media is pretty much going to be able to report, and I think generally speaking, while the government may not like it, uh, a lot of the people in the country say it's good to know what's going on, and I think most most of them will probably, uh, you know, join the media rather than the government. Denise Krupp. I think the perfect example of, of why this is not going to stop is Snowden. I, I mean, it's not as if Snowden wasn't aware of what Manning was doing and what happened to Manning and the fact that the Manning trial was going on in the midst of him releasing what he did. And Manning's been in jail for three years. Yes. So Snowden knew what happened. Snowden knew what the consequences were. And the press also knew what those consequences were, too. And, and I, I don't think the press is going to stop. But I would say that the press is going to go the opposite direction and say, you know what, government... If you continue to do what you are doing, then we are going to continue to do what we are doing because we want to make sure that people know what you're doing. Alan Moore. The media is changing, as we all know. The major newspapers are in decline. Uh, Major television networks, news uh, divisions, are in decline. They're shrinking. People are looking elsewhere to alternative sources for their news. Those sources do not have the kind of discipline and financial stakes in messing up big time. They make mistakes and they say, oh, never mind. Now, in, 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 in the day, not that many years ago, we knew that the major news networks who are the likely folks who are going to get secret information would deal with it with a reasonable degree of non-controlled but reasonable degree of responsibility and they would realize there are there there, there are secrets that they couldn't share they would if they felt like they wanted to share them they would be in touch with the federal agencies involved and they would negotiate and work something out today imagine if somebody like an Aldrich Ames he was a, a an American trader who sold sold for personal gain the names of of U.S. Uh, of, of Russian spies who were providing information to the U.S. government. He told the Russians who they were, and they got these rounded these guys up and killed them. 
Now, imagine we have a situation today where some some whistleblower, somebody at at uh, some I'll call them whistleblower because in their mind that's what they are, but they're they're really not. If they were to say, "Gee, here is somebody inside the Pakistani government who is providing really important and useful information to us," and they tell some news source, whether it's uh, I, I don't think the New York Times or the Washington Post. Would bite on this. But, let's but, go, but let's but go to a these, rogue one like the but, Guardian. They but, can tell the Guardian. Tell the tell the Guardian. Tell you know any one of a number of internet so-called news organizations. Here's the name of a guy in the Pakistani government who has been playing a key role in providing insider information to the U.S. government, and they decide to release it, and 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 then say, hey, journalistic privilege, First Amendment rights. I would say. Throw the book at those people. That 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 is that is treasonous. There there have to be some set of standards and rules. If grand jury testimony is leaked to a reporter in this country, this has been true for a long time. The uh, the Justice Department goes after them. There are secrets that shouldn't be shared. And and if you really feel strongly about it, then stand out there. And say so. Don't try to do it in secret. Do what Daniel Ellsberg did, in effect, um, and uh, and then take your medicine. Well, let me at least let me stop you right there and 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 go into the idea. And uh, we've we've got a call calling in from the four one zero four one zero area code. You're on with backroom politics. Hello. Hello. Yes. Okay. okay. This is the first time I've ever called anywhere. Well, we but, we but, appreciate your call. But what's your question? My comment is, you know, somebody had just stated that um, Snowden, you know, we're talking about the news organizations, the different news organizations, how one should not get the privilege of, um, you know, somebody coming to them and stating something because of national security. What, who, go ahead, sorry. No, 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 just go ahead. Wait, who, who um, decides what news person you should be able to go to in order to state anything that you say at all. You know, I mean, who decides what's a good news organization and who what's not? That's, that is a very valid question. I mean, you know, the caller brings up a very viable point is, is WikiLeaks a viable news organization? Is The Guardian, who's been a long-standing print newspaper in the U.K., now largely looked at as a web blog extraordinaire? Denise Krepp, I'll go to you first. What do you think? I think it's an excellent question because there have been lawsuits over this issue of whether or not you can consider yourself a journalist. And and, and the reason you ask that question is because there is um, certain uh, cases of journalistic privilege where you can hold information back, but that's only if you are considered a journalist. And there have been, again, cases where bloggers have claimed themselves journalists and the government said, no. you're not a journalist, you're a blogger. Go, go try another argument. Bob Hines, you come from the traditional media, being the vice president of NBC. What do you what do you think about the, que- uh, the question? I think Denise is exactly right. I think today the lines are blurred substantially between traditional news gatherers and all kinds of people who are uh, in the business of of talking about it and and people talking to them, and then they go public. Denise Krepp again. And I think there's a tension within the uh, journalist community about that. For example, if you look at some of the major prizes, like the Pulitzer Prize, which is a, uh, a very prestigious prize for the uh, for the media, 
is given to traditional media sources. And there have been those within the blogosphere and others saying, hey, wait a second, why can't I be eligible for the Pulitzer? And their response from the, the uh, mainstream is because you're not a journalist. Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing about it is, you know, we'll say this out loud, I just recently became a member of the National Press Club, invited by the president. Are, are we journalists? Is what we're doing journalistic or is we're, we're we're doing a radio show. We've got callers with questions. Are we journalists? If we were to report something, would the government find us as just you're a blogger, go away? Bob Hines. Right. I'm not sure, but I don't think that uh, we don't consider ourselves no, journalists. No, we, we don't consider ourselves talking heads. Yeah, I don't consider myself a journalist, <laughs> and I don't think any one of us around the table does. Alan Moore. No, we're not journalists. We are not. It, it, it is not our vocation to collect news and report on news. Do we, we not? So we de- we do not report news. We react to news. So we come. Can you still hear me? Yes. Well, go ahead, caller. All right. Sorry. How, then, if you don't, what if you had someone come to you with very vital information? What would you do with that? Where would you go with it? Since there's so much bias on all these different channels, where would you go to be safe? Alan Moore. It, 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 that's, a, that's an interesting question. So, so depending upon who it is and what what it is that they're trying to trade in, I'm just telling you what I would do. If I thought this was a traitorous action, mm-hmm. that this person was about to break the law and potentially do harm to the United States, I would myself probably feel a duty to find some governmental authority to report this to. Now, having yeah, but having what if it was that, something oh, important? Pardon me. No. So so. What if it was something important that needed to be out there? Well, okay, and so again, I, I just say this because it, it, everybody gets to make up their own mind, and this is sort of our problem. But if I said, right. "Hey, I would stick," I would start with the most legitimate news entities you could find. You'll, you'll remember that Snowden went both to the Guardian, but also to the Washington Post, and the right. Guardian, the Guardian told the story first, and the, and the Post. Who, who still is very careful about this kind of stuff, felt, okay, we're coming in right behind the Guardian because it's now out there and we can and we can talk about it. If it were me, I would say go to the Post, go to the New York Times, or go to one of the national networks, uh, including CNN or Fox. Now, there are that's not the answer probably people would want to hear, Depending again, it depends on what the information is and who the person is and how much exposure. If I was a friend of mine who said this is something really, really horrible that I'm seeing and I don't know quite what to do with it, I would try to help them figure it out. I wouldn't. We aren't reporters here. This is not a news enterprise, so it wouldn't be us that would do it. But 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 we all around this table know. Uh, not only press people, but also members of Congress. Sometimes you might have a, a piece of whistleblower information that you say, no, 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 don't take it to the press. Let's take it to some people in the Congress who right. know and care, and they might be able to play an important role. Uh, caller, we're coming up on the uh, on the break. Uh, we, we really appreciate your call and hope that you'll listen in. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. Every call. Thanks. Bye. We appreciate your call. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears real quick. We're going to talk about the latest rounds of Mitty's peace talks that uh, Secretary of State John Kerry announced uh, last Friday that are now ongoing here in Washington, D.C., down in Foggy Bottom. 
we'll talk about that with our uh, international expert, Dr. Ralph Winnie, who's on the line. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. Everybody knows Shelley's Backroom for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and furred cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelley's is open during the weekend, too. In fact, Shelley's Back Room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelley's Cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room. It's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., official sponsor of Backroom Politics. On the elevation, on the shelf, they misbehaving. Saving my love for you and you, especially you, yeah. I know for certain the one I love, I'm through with flirting as you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Capital, Washington, D.C. Breaking development uh, on the 530 hour, we're going to have Kevin Crick, who is the chairman of the Marin County Republican Party, on to uh, talk to him. The Marin County Republican Party is the first county party in the country to actually take off their platform gay marriage. They've actually voted to support gay marriage, and in a very interesting uh, development has stirred up a whole hornet's nest in the Republican Party. We're going to talk to Chairman Crick here in the 5:30 hour. But joining us right now in this segment is the international expert for Blog Talk Radio's Backroom Politics. He is the Vice President of the Eurasia Center. He is Dr. Ralph Winnie. Hey, Ralph, thanks for joining us. Sure, glad to be with everybody. Uh, you know, it, it's amazing right now what we've got going here in Washington, D.C. Last Friday, Secretary of State John Kerry uh, announced that a new round, for the first time in three years, a new round of Middle East peace talks between the Palestinians and the uh, Israeli government will be going on. In fact, they're ongoing now after a nice, quaint dinner last night down the Foggy Bottom at State Department headquarters. Uh, but th- this is a big breakthrough. And this is something that's big on the Obama agenda. Uh, Ralph, what do you want to start with you? 
Um, last Friday, we had heard that uh, Secretary Kerry had announced the, the talks in Washington. Obviously, there was buy-in from the Palestinian uh, regime as well as the Israeli government. It, it, it seems like with everything going on, with you know, an upsurge in violence in Iraq, with instability in Egypt, and ongoing terrible situation in Syria, that this is still the top of the president's Middle East agenda. Can, is there justification for this trumping the well, other issues that should be coming up? Sure. I think Obama's belief is that um, in order to solve issues in the Middle East, you have to go with the crux of the issue, and that's solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the way to do that is to get both sides sitting down, engaging in constructive talks. But but it, it seems, though, even with the constructive talks, and we'll, we'll talk about the details in a second, that, that, that Syria and Egypt would be a more pressing issue than cashing in political and international chips on this topic, something that stalled not just three years ago, but stalled over the past decade. Well, I, I think um, certainly if you look at these talks, between the Israel and Palestinian leadership. What's brought out is that Hamas is not part of this, um, these talks. And the reason is, um, you know, what's interesting is Hamas has now been weakened by a falling out with Iran and the setback in Egypt because um, people in Egypt are very upset uh, with uh, Morsi. They're having these protests. And Hamas now is starting to lose their power and their influence. But what you want to do is you want to take the Israeli-Palestinian conflict out of the hands of radicals. And Obama's belief that in order to do that, you have to have constructive talks to solve these issues, uh, dealing with the with uh, promoting a two-state uh, solution. We have the independent sovereign state of Palestine side-by-side uh, side with the independent state of Israel. And what Kerry is trying to do, he's trying to address the core issues, like the issue of Jerusalem and the settlement. Which is the only way to get a peace agreement that's that's going to last uh, a long time. Yeah, but Ralph, Ralph, you know, the the Israeli government under uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has said unequivocally that any thought of them going back to the pre-1967 war borders is just out of the question. We are going to continue settling. These are rightfully Israeli land. That land is sovereign. If there's no budging coming out of Tel Aviv. What could possibly be uh, a, a dramatic change that could happen this week? Well, I think what's interesting is when you hear, when you uh, listen to Michael Oren, he says over and over again how committed Israel is to peace. And one of the things that Israel did um, is they released a number of Palestinian prisoners that caused many people in Israel to become very upset at Netanyahu. But what or but what Oren has said is. Look, Israel is ready to make painful sacrifices, even if it means um, our people are going to be upset with, with, with the government, because it's important to achieve a long-lasting peace with the Palestinians. What they want to see is the Palestinians make these very tough emotional choices um, in order to continue to move the peace process along. Um, but the key is, if you've got people sitting down, there seems to be good issues but you're going to have to continue to move it up another level. And uh, certainly the release of these prisoners 
uh, which is causing a lot of a lot of anger among the average Israeli populace, is a start. Uh, but certainly there is a long way to go, and that's why you're going to have to focus on the issue of settlement and on the issue of Jerusalem. Um, if you don't solve those issues, then and the, then the talks just end up in a quagmire. Uh, go over to Alan Moore. Alan Moore, you first. There are two overarching issues that the U.S. cares about in the region. One is oil. Two is Israel. They matter. They will continue to matter. They will always matter. Um, so any time we can get the Israelis and the Palestinians to talk to each other, and it's been five years since they've had any serious conversation, we want to make that happen. We devote time, effort, resources, and energy constantly to make that happen. Finally, we've got another little opening. Um, we, we know both sides are, quote, uh, intransigent about all sorts of things. Well, ultimately, they also are sitting down in not a, for a week, not for a day. Today's day one of a process that already has a nine-month schedule with an understanding that if nine months from now they're still together, still talking, making progress, it may go longer. This doesn't. This is not something that happens in a in a nice weekend uh, somewhere. We're 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 moving forward. Both sides find it in their interest to have these conversations now. Cool. And uh, Israel wants something settled, and 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 so so do the uh, the, the the Palestinians. In terms of the rest of the Middle East, it's about the oil, and there's humanitarian concerns that we care about and disruption and so on. Those are important. We didn't drop them to take this up. We can walk and chew gum at the same time, but we take any opportunity we can to get, uh, to get Middle East conversations like this going. Carl Tubin. Israel has wanted, Israel, the people of Israel have wanted these talks to go on for a long time. <clears throat> they want peace. Uh, in some regards, this is a talk to get ready to talk. The tough issues have been put off uh, until someplace midway to the end of this whole situation. Kerry um, comes from a diplomatic family. He's doing what he loves to do. He's been able to, to meet with these people and bring them together and have them sit down. But this is the beginning of a long, long road. But I, 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 you know, from my youth, uh, these issues have been in my family, and it's been a tough road for people who want peace uh, that this thing has been dropped so far. Hopefully this will work. Denise Crabb? I, I want to kind of tie in uh, what, what uh, two previous speakers had said, and, and that is that we need, the, we need these talks to occur now because the population that currently exists in Palestine and in Israel is a young population, and it is a young, unemployed population. And what we cannot afford, especially when we're dealing with a mixed-up Syria and we've got other problems in Libya, is to have uh, a very angry 18- to 23-year-old population that would like to do nothing more than to start fighting again. It is in our interest to make sure that these talks start, and not only do these talks start, but my argument is that you need to bring business into these talks. You need to say, after you know these talks are done, I can get you X number of jobs, and you want those jobs because if people are working, they're not fighting. But, but one, one of the things that we've seen of interest, and I want everybody to consider this, is that 
one of the missing parties at the table is Hamas. Hamas, which has a serious influx of power inside the Palestinian Authority right now, is still considered a terrorist organization by the United States. Uh, Ralph, Winnie, I'll start with you. Can any talks be substantial without having Hamas at the table? Are we just spinning wheels? I think it comes down to whether Hamas is going to continue to be weakened. Already they've had a falling out with Iran, and there's been a major setback for Hamas in having a degree of influence in Egypt. So if that continues, then Hamas will will not become a relevant uh, player or, or a partner in any kind of peace negotiation. So the key is for them... Ralph, 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 even with yep. their presence inside the Palestinian Legislative Authority? Well, that's certainly the challenge. Uh, but the key, what what I think both Abbas and, and Netanyahu are hoping is that Hamas itself is going to become weakened. weakened. And if these talks can lead to a form of economic stability where jobs are created, then Hamas certainly becomes weakened from that perspective. But it's going to take some time. Right now, Hamas is, is still a major issue that they have to overcome, no question. Alan Moore? Yeah, I agree with Ralph. I mean, you, in effect, you take what you get. We, we, we've been working working five years to get these kinds of conversations started. If they start to move, then Hamas will have a choice uh, to make, uh, even in a weakened state. Are we going to yell and scream and make life uh, all the more difficult if we do that? Is that going to work to our narrow benefit? Do we think we can sell to a larger population that, that we should blow up these talks? These things are all fragile. And uh, and but 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 we got two sides now willing to 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 get together. We've got Israel saying we will we will selectively start releasing some of these prisoners. We will take political heat for that. They can show that they've got new additional skin in the game. But but this but the but both sides for their long term interests for stability for jobs for potential for economic development have a lot at stake here. Carl Tubin, you're, you're close to the APAC community. Uh, this has ruffled some feathers inside uh, the Jewish political community here in the United States, as well as a lot of the hardliners inside Israel. Is What is different now, or what could possibly different, be different now in their odds that would make them want to see this happen, including piecemealing some of the key issues prisoner releases, and settlement of the West Bank. Yeah, you know, there's, always, there's always a group inside a group that likes the status quo and, and likes to keep things going uh, and, and, and make trouble. Um, Martin Indig, who, is, who comes out of the APAC community, has just been made a special ambassador, I believe, for the Mideast, for the Mideast to help shepherd these talks along. So... <clears throat> I would look. I would look to uh, to the Secretary of State and the President, and to Netanyahu. And Netanyahu, Netanyahu has said, whatever comes out of this, if a, if a treaty comes out of this, it would be put to a vote in Israel, uh, up or down. So, you know, I think, as far as I'm concerned, would any treaty? Will interrupt? Would any treaty out of these negotiations? Be voted in favor in the current state of Israel. We have well, we, I, to some degree, I would say yes, 
but we have to see what the actual treaty is going to be and what, what the compromise is going to be. Bob Hines, you had a comment. Yeah, it's, it <clears throat> seems to me that one of the important features here, and we've touched on it, is the fact that Hamas, which is running Gaza, but is part of the, uh, of the Palestinian uh, front, but is estranged, I think would be the way to put it, is clearly being, uh, you know, they're being left on the sidelines at their own desire. And as, if things can progress a little bit, we may see something uh, very interesting because Hamas has lost some friends in Egypt, as in places, and uh, they don't want to disappear. And they're going to, it, it could be that just a little bit of progress, the, fa the mere fact that people are seriously sitting down and talking is going to require them to reassess what they should be doing. And anything that we can do in that sense is, it, is if, if we can forward the talks just so it appears that things are moving in a direction that is positive and harming to the, the Hamas view of, you know, kill all the Israelis, so to speak. The reality is, for, is it's a plus. It's a plus we ought to be pleased with. Whatever the end result is, the effort to do it is very important, and at the same time we have a reasonable chance, uh, not by anything we would do, but by what the parties would do at the table, that would, would, would weaken some of the more um, bellicose and obstreperous groups in the Middle East. And that's a good thing. But Ralph, when you, when, you know, when we talk about peace talks, Middle East peace talks between the Palestinians and uh, and, and Israel, you know, we we, right. we you know we have these these visions in our head of of, of uh, Yasser Arafat at the table under the Clinton pres presidency. Uh, originally, we have visions. The ultimate vision is uh, Anwar Sadat. And uh, Prime Minister of Israel at the time, um, Megan, uh, Megan, Megan. Megan. Well, you know, we have those visions in our mind. This doesn't seem to have that type of gravitas right now. Does that not mean that these are, in fact, a serious step towards possibly getting peace between the Palestinians and the uh, Israelis? Sure. I mean, this is a nine-month timetable. So we just have to sort of wait and see how these negotiations develop. Right now, uh, there's some very, very good signs. Israel has released these prisoners. Uh, but it's going to take uh, more painful measures, especially on the uh, Palestinian side. And I think the Israelis are going to look if Abbas can do anything to continue to weaken Hamas within Israel. That will send a very strong signal that the that Palestinians are very committed to uh, making these negotiations work. Course, too, the other thing that has to happen, I think, is you're going to have to see the Israelis dismantle more settlement. And that's going to be even more painful from uh, within, within Israel itself. Because many people view these settlements as uh, a buffer or defense against uh, potential terrorist attacks in the country. Carl Tubin. You know, John Kerry has been looking to be Secretary of State for a long time. And and he has he has great ties to both sides, uh, and which is why he was able to bring this together as quickly as he has. This is his moment to shine and I I I, I have 
enough faith in John and, and, and what he's what he can do to hope that this might be the breakthrough moment. But it's going to take time. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be a lot of discussion, a lot of issues on the table, and it's not going to be pretty at times. But hopefully it'll prevail. Denise Crap. It is going to take time. I mean, this is not going to be something that's going to be solved in a year. It's not going to be solved in 10 years. And it probably is not going to be solved in 20 years. But one of the things I would encourage the U.S. government to do is to bring some people out of Palestine and out of Israel into areas where you could have a cross-population and, and cross-training. I mean, I, there's an example of this um, that, that, that's occurred in the military. When I was on active duty, uh, I went to school with uh, folks from Southeast Asia and from the, so the former Soviet republics and, and other places. It, it was a very interesting experience because we had the opportunity to talk about what our different judicial systems looked like. Um, in, in, in our system, for example, sometimes you went to jail. In other systems, sometimes they killed you. Um, it, it was a very interesting way to learn about everybody's systems, but it started everybody talking. And, and that's what you need is you need to get people, especially at, you know, the lower grade within the military needs to talk, and then the middle grade needs to talk. And finally, if you get this to starting to work, in 15 to 20 years, when they are the upper management, when they are the generals, then they'll be able to pick up the phone because they'll know each other. Carl Tubin? There, <clears throat> There is a camp in Israel, a few of them, sponsored by uh, some people in Cincinnati and throughout the United States that bring young Arab children and, and Israelis together and they, they have them for, for a good eight weeks, and they, they interact and, and learn about each other. And that one of the reasons they did that was that hope that they could grow up a new generation who had some real ties with one another, and some of this could subside. Alan Moore. And a, another example of these programs that work with youth, uh, I was just this weekend with, uh, with a nephew of mine who now for two years in a row has gone to uh, to Israel to participate in a program called Ultimate Peace, where they take boys and girls, uh, teenagers, uh, Arab and, is and Israeli, uh, about 60 of them, to teach them ultimate frisbee. They play ultimate frisbee. They they have they have teams that have an equal mix: boys, girls, Arab, Israeli, and they live together. They socialize and they come away with, at least for the moment, a transformed, better informed view uh, of the other side. It's, it's just one small little thing, but when you see his pictures, hear the story, hear about kids visiting each other's homes, it, 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 it reminds us that it's not just about the high-level politicians posturing, but that there are people who are living almost side by side. There are a lot of Palestinian uh, Israelis, remember, they're not all Jews. There's a chunk of Christians there, too. And uh, one of the great fears for Israel is that there will be, that there will be more Arabs uh, than, than Jews, and this is one, one of the action-forcing events. Uh, Ralph, I'm going to give you the last word before we go to break. How important is this for the Obama's international platform that there be some success? This just does not look like another failed round of talks. Well, I think it's very, very important because any time you uh, move forward on these kind of negotiations, um, it, it will ha have a ripple effect um, in the Middle East. Uh, Obama's position is 
that uh, he wants a lasting peace and to create a two-state solution. And I think we all would agree that that's a noble goal, and we hope that that can be achieved. But certainly, he does have to keep an eye on what's going on in Egypt and Syria. Those are not issues that are going to go away, but they are also going to consume a lot of his time. Very good. Very good. Ralph Winnie, appreciate you joining us as always. Thanks. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. And when we're going to take a quick break, when we come back, we're going to talk about the ongoing soap opera in Virginia politics. There's a developing story out of Richmond revolving current Governor Bob McDonald. He's giving back his money. And it's just, it's a soap opera. We love it. We can't get enough of it. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes, 45 seconds. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, well, it's soap opera time. You thought we could just give you hashtag Carlos Danger? No, we've got hashtag Richmond. In the latest circle of drama coming out of the Commonwealth's capital, uh, the developing story is right now, 
one time GOP rising starlet, now kind of questionable political future. Bob McDonald, Bob McDonald has decided that he's going to return all gifts back to a questionable donor uh, in a questionable election donation scheme, which one of the gifts includes $15,000 for catering for his daughter's wedding and a $6,000 Rolex, which $6,000, my God, nice watch. Uh, But this continues at the same time. Bob Cuccinelli, the GOP uh, attorney general in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, continues to turn the rhetoric up uh, for the Republican Party on on the Democratic challenger in the uh, in the governor's race, saying that well, you know what? It's it's partisan party politics, political favors all over again. So let's start with Bob McDonald. Uh, I want to start Alan Moore. How dead is Bob McDonald's political career right now? Well, he's got no political future, but he does have an issue of credibility between now and the end of the year. He'd like to stay in office and not be run out of town on a rail. Um, It's pretty obvious that we had an unfortunate combination of true financial need on on his part, more on that in a moment, and really, really loose laws. Virginia's got some of the loosest uh, uh, campaign laws. Well, and gift-giving laws in the country, and they really need to be fixed and changed because things like this can happen again. But remember, he last uh, a few days ago, he paid back $120,000 in so-called loans, and now he has agreed uh, uh, in, in furtherance to try to get this issue out of, uh, out of the, the front pages of the papers uh, here in Virginia uh, or in this area. Um, to, to give back all the other gifts that he has taken, and it's in the neighborhood of $35,000, dollars $45,000. His problem is he doesn't have any money. What, what we learned from before was he and his sister, back in 2007, bought two beach houses, each uh, about $2 million worth of houses, and they thought they were going to cash in on the big uh, real, estate. real estate boom, start buy these houses, use them as rental properties, pay it back, and then the market went to hell, and they weren't able to rent them, and he suddenly was having trouble meeting his uh, his mortgage responsibilities. And it, this friend, Johnny Williams, this guy who's the, the, the source of all of this money, said, well, let me help. So he not only loaned uh, the, uh, Mrs. McDonald 50 grand and also took her on some shopping trips, um, but he loaned uh, this little enterprise that bought these houses about 70000 What that tells you is, or what it tells me, is that they were so desperate and didn't have the resources to make good on this stuff that they went looking elsewhere and were in, and were convinced that they weren't breaking any laws. What they were doing, though, is breaking their faith with the public and destroying any political future. Bob, Bob Hines, uh, a lot of people around the Beltway and in, in, inside Republican circles nationwide were looking at Bob McDonald as a possible series candidate, if not a series player in 2016, in getting the Republicans back in the White House. That has since gone. Can he regain any of his credibility between now and 2016 to allow him to be a player at all? One word, no. He can't. Uh, I mean, he's not the first Republican to go through a scandal like this. No, but and other Republicans have survived and thrown he, he is not going to be able to come back on this. It's 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 been too deep. It's been too long. Uh, I don't think he can come back. I really, I think he is, he's going to have to do something else in his career. Um, it, it just is over. 
Now, Carl Tubin, you're the uh, you're, you're former chairman or former executive director of the of the Democratic Party in Maryland, right next to the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Are you shocked at the campaign yeah. finance laws that are that are floating around Virginia? And I mean, Maryland's got some pretty strict laws on itself. You'd think that would bleed over. Yeah, <clears throat> doesn't bleed over. Uh, first of all, let me say it. You know. I'm sad when this kind of thing happens in either party because <clears throat> it just puts politics one one more step down and, and, and it affects everyone who loves politics and is active in politics and, and people who try to do the right thing. And it, it doesn't make a good impression for kids and, and people who hate politics. Oh, look at that. It's another thing. And I feel sorry for uh, for the governor and his wife uh, for finding themselves in, in a situation where they had to do that. Uh, you know, when when the, when the Nixon thing happened, you know, it, it, even though it, you know it, it played into my party's um, <clears throat> uh, favor, still it was a sad, sad situation. The Maryland laws were tightened up when <clears throat> uh, money was flowing around Maryland. Uh, under under governors Mandel to be the top, top one, uh, Agnew when he was governor, etc. And the, and after those scandals and the savings and loan scandals, they tightened up Maryland's laws so that some of this wouldn't happen. These crap. And that's why I'm a little surprised that they're as lax as they are in Virginia. Uh, I'm barred in Virginia, and one of the things I noticed when I took the bar several years ago was that. Um, Several of the hypotheticals, because not only do you have a multiple choice, but you have um, numerous hypotheticals, they were all based on current events. And they were based on current events because they wanted to make sure that people weren't going to repeat current events. So knowing that there had been prior scandals in Maryland or in other states, why Virginia chose not to make changes was a little shocking. Alan Moore? It, it, it's interesting to think about what, what the implications are on this for the, uh, for the governor's race, because... Uh, because Attorney General Cuccinelli, a very conservative uh, Republican, uh, controversially uh, so, uh, is also on the hook for between fifteen and eighteen thousand dollars of gifts, uh, et cetera, from the same guy. Now, the fact that McDonnell has paid it back means Cuccinelli has to pay it back, and he's got to pay it back soon. We've got a really interesting uh, race here because you got Cuccinelli with some. Pretty wacky right-wing conservative ideas. I mean, this guy, this guy is also far right. -wing. Well, he's also been the attorney general, who's done some reasonably responsible things as attorney general. It's just some of his personal views on some of the, of the social issues are way out there, very controversial, creating a real opportunity for Democrats. On the other hand, <laughs> we've got Terry McAuliffe, who is Mr. Slick. Mr. Mr. Some people say sleazy. He's got a really he's big personality. Never did much. Carpetbagger tag. Friend of the Clintons. A very spotty record. He did one brilliant thing one time. One time, and that is in a sweetheart deal, invested a hundred thousand dollars that turned into eighteen million. I would love that kind of a deal for me. Um, wouldn't we all? But. Everything else he's ever touched from a business standpoint has pretty much gone to hell. So there's a new 30-minute movie out just in the last day or two that's available on YouTube, and it's going to be shown all over the state, that, that takes issue with his claims as being a job creator because there are many, many holes in that claim. 
somebody's going to win this race and the other party is going to say, why did we pick this guy to run? Because we could have won this with the better candidate. And, and Bob Cuccinelli, I mean, along with trying to run on the now dirtied soil coattails of at one time a 61% approval rating popular governor in Virginia, Cuccinelli's got his own problems. In particularly, he's got a lieutenant governor's pick that is even further right than him, which is shocking. Bob Hines, <laughs> you, you know, when, when we're trying to find in the Republican Party some sense of centerism, embracing uh, those who aren't old white guys, these guys are doing everything possible to oust that maneuver to try and get old white guys from Roanoke to vote for them. Well, you know, one of the truths about politics is there are several ways to pick candidates. One of them is a primary. Now that's you know that's the way that anybody who, who says I'm gonna I'm for this party can vote in their primary election. The other way is to have a caucus. Now, obviously, the people who go to a caucus are much more committed to uh, the uh, let's put it this way: the more vigorous group of this in this in the party who want it their way or the highway. I wouldn't exactly always call them Tea Party type, but that's reality. Yeah. You know, if you have a if you're in California and you're gonna hold a primary uh, or a convention, if, you know, the convention will bring you a re- lot of real strong left wing Democrats. A primary will give you a broader vote. In re- in Ohio, same thing. Any place in the country. In Virginia, this last year, the Republican Party leadership uh, in effect decided that they were going to do not a not a primary but a convention and a very competent lieutenant governor decided not to even try to go to the convention because he knew that he was going to be defeated by Mr. Cuccinelli, the uh, attorney general, who had in his pocket the more conservative part of part of the of the uh, Republican caucus, if you will. And here we have a situation where we have two candidates who I think probably a substantial portion of the voting population would say a pox on both your houses. Uh, one of them is, 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 Alan has said, kind of a sleazy character, and the other one is a right-wing well, nut. Let's, let's talk about Terry McAuliffe for a second, because Terry McAuliffe, along with being former chairman of the DNC, along with being a longtime political ally and political hitman, for the Clintons, mm-hmm. which they're not getting any great press of late. Okay. Hashtag Carlos Danger. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Denise, you know, I mean, now you're talking about possible criminal activity in the McAuliffe camp with the uh, illegal support of or the, the illegal politicizing of these EB6V or these EB5 visas that are coming out. Can Terry McAuliffe legitimately say, I'm different from the other set of scandals going on. My scandal's not that bad. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. See, that brings in mind the um, the statement, and, and I, I'm going to transition this one, where Spitzer said he wouldn't vote for, for uh, Wiener. And I'm thinking, you can differentiate yourself on that one? <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm not sure how you're doing that. But okay, let's try. Um it's amazing in politics how, well, let's, let's be honest, when you don't want it to be on you, put it on somebody else. Um, so let's all have fun watching this next couple of months. 
But but I, I want to go back to something that that Carl Tubin said is, you know, in, in Virginia, which is which is literally on the flux. You want to talk about a purple state? It is literally on the flux of going either blue or red at any given second. Bob Hines, you're a voter in the Commonwealth of Virginia. When you look at all of this. Does this, I mean, is the electoral base on either side of the party ready to say, you know what, you know, we're going to have to get behind it and swallow this just god-awful horse pill? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I have talked to several people who, who wonder if it's legal to write none of the above on their ballot. <laughs> Could we see a none of the above Showing in a in a gubernatorial election in the next ninety days, Alan Moore. No, I think what you're going to do is have a pretty low turnout, yeah. and uh, and then a lot of the people who do vote will hold their nose and vote for for one or the other, um, for very different reasons. Uh, we were talking, you know, Cuccinelli actually has was not tying his coattails to uh, to Bob McDonald. He he resisted a a pretty forward thinking transportation initiative in the state and he fought it and then he fought it and ultimately embraced it after it passed but he it was it was McAuliffe interestingly who was claiming to be a centrist in the Bob McDonald mode a job creator in the Bob McDonald mode and then when all this this money stuff uh, that that had no reasonable explanation started to come out uh, McAuliffe stopped talking about him. Cuccinelli never really did talk about him all that much. So now nobody's talking about him. They're watching him kind of float in the wind, uh, trying to recover some sense of dignity and some opportunity for employment uh, to stay on the job and, and employment uh, post uh, uh, elect, po post uh, the, the new election um, so that he can go earn some money and pay off all of his new loans that he's taken out to pay for these uh, these earlier loans and gifts, uh, Carl Tubin, when we when we look at uh, Terry McCullough, one would expect with the past relationship that he's had with the Clintons, Clintons haven't exactly been running through Virginia a whole lot. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise me yet. But <clears throat> I, I think. Do you think that the Clintons have given up on Terry no, McAuliffe, no, or do they, they want to no, attach no, that no, horse? No, 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 no. In September and October, you might find Bill and Hillary uh, taking up residence in the state of Virginia and campaigning hard for Terry. Even with all of the possible <laughs> corruption possibilities, all of the po and again, these are all alleged. Let's be clear. Right. All the alleged corruption, all the alleged finagling that he's done politically for his own self gain. You think the Clintons, particularly with what's happening with the Wiener situation, they'll get on board with that? I I, I can say that that Terry has been very very sloppy. Can't get the words out. He's been very loyal to the Clintons. And I think that the Clintons will turn around and be loyal to him in this situation. Denise Crab. I also think that the, the Clintons are going to look at the greater political uh, strategy, and, and that's something that people are beginning to talk to. Is not only do we as Democrats need to control the presidency, but we need to control the governorships and we need to control the state legislatures, because those are where you start seeing the state laws come out, and also those are where you see 
the uh, division of district. I mean, let's call it gerrymandering for what it is, but one of the reasons that we were not as successful as we were the last term is because the districts had been redistrict had been um, redrawn redrawn based off of the 2010 census. We need to hold as much as we can so that when we start talking about the next census, we've got our ducks in the row and we have the people in place. Good luck with that. Uh, Alan Moore. Well, so Terry McAuliffe has been uh, able to, to play an interesting role with regard to the Clintons. Bill Clinton likes him. Hillary Clinton likes him. That's not true of all the people in the Clinton camp. So somehow he's been able to... Uh, to befriend them both. I think they both would like to help him. The question is, how can they best help him? You can be absolutely certain that to date they have helped him raise money, and 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 that's really important. That was uh, that was something that that Anthony Weiner was hoping he could get from the Clinton the the, uh, the Clintons, and of course that hasn't worked out. Where they've put huge distance between themselves and and uh, uh, and, and and Weiner, but. But how much they come to the state will depend on how much the smart political brains uh, assume that it will make sense and be helpful. There's, there are plenty of places in the state that neither Bill nor Hillary Clinton will go to help uh, uh, McCall. The person you have called is unavailable right now. Please try again later. No, I, the person who has called is not available at this moment. The other folks that are going to be interesting to see is if the president and the first lady come into Virginia. The first lady has done a tremendous amount of work with military families. She has uh, been around the country talking to them and advocating for them. And the question will be whether or not she will also go down to the Tidewater area, yeah. as well as the um, the bases here in Northern Virginia, to uh, you know to promote Terry McAuliffe and the work that he may be able to do for veterans in Virginia. Bob Hines. One final thought I, I would like to suggest. Consider this. Virginia is the home of so many presidents, early presidents. Mr. Washington, who without him we wouldn't have a country. Mr. Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, got us the Louisiana Purchase. Madison, who practically wrote the Constitution. Just and others. Just think if they're if, if they're not rolling in their grave, I do not know what's going on. It's the most embarrassing election I have ever seen at the level of, of in my life, in the level of any place I've ever lived, to have both parties have candidates who really who really are are just not appropriate. I don't want to call them incompetent. I like to call them jerks. Well, it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. For, for you know, for a non for an off election year. Yeah. We got Virginia. We got our buddy Anthony Weiner in in New York. Don't forget, we got don't forget Elliot Spitzer. We we've got we we haven't even, we've never even mentioned the current mayor of San Diego. Yeah. Oh, you know, <laughs> Congressman Bob Fuller. I mean, since you brought it up, got 
this amazing so, selection of losers. Apparently, out of all the topics we've talked about today, the one that has got Congressman Al's attention, and we're waiting for Congressman Al to call in because he wants to comment on, <laughs> on, on, on this subject. <laughs> He's down in St. Croix on vacation, apparently listening, and wants to call in. So, Congressman Al, if you're listening, call us. We'll take your call. But let's talk about... okay. Let's talk about Carlos Danger and uh, the steamroller for a second. Carlos Danger, uh, also known as Anthony Weiner, uh, is now falling into fourth place in the latest Quinnipiac polls. It only took of, him a week. It took him a week. And just think, I listened to that show last week, hysterical. But you would think now that, and now on top of that, he's also angered the Clinton camp by making references of, you know, Homer's my Hillary. And apparently this has gotten Hillary and Bill and everybody in the Clinton cap up in arms. Dumb move, smart move, Alan Moore. Well, everything the guy Or act of desperation. Everything he's doing is dumb, and it's all uh, uh, an act of of desperation. And it's... uh, And what he's succeeded in doing, in addition to ruining his own reputation, almost certainly permanently this time... He has also succeeded in ruining his wife's uh, reputation, although she contributed to it. She was apparently a woman of great accomplishment and much loved in the in, in the Clinton camp. Um, she made her own choice uh, to go out there and in, 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 and sit with People magazine, sit with the New York Times, and pretend that everything was rosy and perfect. This in the in the last year, and supporting this idea of going into the mayoral race. Knowing that his his lewd, disgusting, gross, over the top, crazy behavior had occurred after he stepped down, after he made these commitments, and after they gave very misleading joint conversations and interviews with 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 people in the New York Times, and now people are saying, "Hey." She made this bid. She's the one who stood out there. She's the one who stood on national television and said, this is between us, when it obviously isn't. It's one thing to say she's doing this to try for, for the sake of her son, but she has hurt her own credibility, and they're going down together. Wow. That's very sad. Uh, Denise Krupp, you know, we're seeing Democrats all over the place stay in races that you just scratch your head and go, seriously. Uh, the mayor of San Diego, former Congressman Filmer, is not stepping down as the mayor of San Diego. He's decided instead, on taxpayer dollars, to go and check into sex rehab. You have you have Anthony Weiner. We know about Carlos Danger, and you got Elliot Spitzer, who, out of everybody, seems to be the lesser of all evils. He at least admitted it, and this changed his ways. Still with his wife. Can the Democrats get out of their own? This sounds like a Republican. Conspiracy, first of all, or a, a typical Republican uh, issue where usually we're the ones caught with our pants down. Democrats are getting a taste of this medicine right now. Well, well let's just put it this way. I don't want any of these men to represent me. They won't. They'll be in San Diego, New York City, and right. Virginia. But my, my problem is, is, is something that we need to be talking about as a country is we need to have people that are honest, straightforward, and know how to get the job done. There are too many problems in this country for us to be worrying about whether or not somebody can keep their pants up. I don't want a mayor who I have to contemplate. 
did he sleep with somebody else, not his wife tonight? I want the mayor to say, you know, can I fix my infrastructure? Or is can that I picture get... on Twitter really my mayor? Uh, you know, that's insane. And we as the United States need to be saying to ourselves, we are a very important country. But, we have very important problems, and let's start fixing them. But, Bob Hines, you know, one of the problems that everybody has said in politics, I've said this numerous times, is that the scrutiny is so huge right now that the media is this bloodthirsty animal that's got constantly got to feed, 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 and they, they grab onto these stories. Look, a lot of good people that were in politics have been blown out because of... Some have said over-scrutiny. Are we being too harsh on some of these candidates? And are we keeping some good candidates out? I've got skeletons in my closet. Everybody's got skeletons. Do we want to see more political... For yourself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, now that we're on the air, everybody's, everybody's an angel. I mean... I am. Oh, stop. <laughs> stop. Fine. Other than you no, four, but, yeah, are but, we losing no. good people? Yes, we are, but let me... Let me also say something to who, the, everybody who is listening. We, the voters, have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to find the right people, and it isn't that hard. But it's so easy to go with the flash, to go with the zing, and say, boy, isn't this a great candidate, and it's just, it's just hollow. There's, a, there's an awful lot of that in politics. And, okay, so you elect that person once, but you ought to realize, again, there are people who just get elected over and over who aren't qualified to be there, shouldn't be there, and we, the voters, are the ones who ought to be more careful about who we choose. Kevin, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Carl Tuvin. <laughs> really shook up, huh? Uh, no, 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 I'm looking forward to our 530 segment. Let me, let me just say that, you know, first of all, I'm glad that this is happening in 2013, and November will come, and some of the hopefully this will go away. Anthony Anthony Weiner is not going to be elected mayor of New York. They're going to either have Thompson or the council president Quinn, uh, Spitzer or De Blasio, or De Blasio. De Blasio right, Spitzer. Uh, who knows what's going to happen there? We'll have to wait and see, but. Uh, again, and, and but how does how does somebody like Congressman Filner still stay in place? You know, I've known Bob for a long time. I knew his father uh, very well. And did he make advances at you? No, no. But this is absolutely. I was I was caught completely off guard, and some of my friends were completely off guard. We had never never imagined any of this that was happening when he was here. We just didn't know about. It. You know, I, it, it, it reminds me, I, I knew Senator Bob Packwood, as, as Bob did, and, and uh, he was a terrific senator, very effective uh, chairman of a couple of different committees and really got stuff done. But he had this fundamental flaw. What was in, that? You know, of, <laughs> of, of, of basically, in, in public and odd and weird ways, assaulting women in his life, very much like what Filmer is doing. Um, you know, he's not... He's not sneaking around. He's doing stupid things in the office with women on his staff. With with Hackwood, it wasn't his staff. It was it was strangers, including a, a couple of reporters. Um, it was just weird and creepy, and it and it was his undoing. It will be Filner's undoing. Why now? He is the sitting mayor. He's he's a little bit like Bob McDonald. That is, he's behaving badly, but he's 
He's in office. He's not being indicted. He's just being fundamentally embarrassed. It's costing a bunch of money in legal fees. He's asked the, the city, the city to, to pay for to his pay for legal, legal fees. fees. And today, the city filed suit against him for the money he has cost them. So you've got you've got just a weird, bizarre set of, of, of behaviors. He, he, he may survive as mayor because there's probably an impeachment process of some kind, but but basically, he's done too. Well, we're gonna we're gonna let that be the last word on this. We'll be following this because this is just too good not to follow. Uh, but when we come back, we're gonna have the chairman of the Marin County Republican Party, Kevin Crick, uh, Marin County, California. The Republican Party in Marin County is the first county party to openly embrace and accept gay marriage. We're gonna talk to Kevin and the crap storm that he's created inside the party when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're joining us right now. Joining us right now is the chairman of the Republican Party of Marin County. He is also vice chairman of the state party in California for the Bay Area. He is chairman Kevin Crick. Kevin, how you doing? Good, Justin. Hey, good to have you on. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, for those of you who have not seen the latest coming out of California, Kevin is the chairman of the first GOP committee to openly embrace gay marriage in direct defiance of the NRC or the RNC rather. This has started a whole debate and gotten the Republican Party all riled up. Kevin, I got to start with you. How did this come up first? What made you decide to take this track? Well, I figured I could call into your show then with this and then ask the question if Shelley's back room was finally serving Yingling Lager on tap again. Yes, we are. That's one answer. <laughs> but the reality of the situation is, in all seriousness, this was a, a strategic effort. Um, we started looking at this uh, back in March. I came back from the uh, California Republican uh, leadership retreat for the, the directors and brought back a lot of statistics and uh, perspective on how our Republican Party in California was being perceived and what we needed to do to make some changes in order to attract new voters and you know what we had to do to get people elected. So we sat down in Marin with this data. I took I extrapolated some data from Marin as well, and we started looking at this to develop a long-range strategic plan for Marin. And uh, we decided that uh, and after looking through all the analysis, all the data, be it voter registration, you know, appearances in the media of you know specific topics, to um, you know the uh, uh, how people voted in Marin, we realized that we've got to plan to put forward that covers a whole host of local issues, but we will never, ever get to the dialogue on what's critical on those local issues if we can't take something, some things off the table. And one of the things that we realized we could take off the table was the issue of same-sex marriage. It has never been an issue for Marin County. We've never had a platform that said we oppose same-sex marriage, but we felt that the... Uh, uh, the state and the national platforms, which were the default, it, um, were then applying to our party in Marin. And we decided that, uh, you know, like many other uh, Republicans think that, you know, we need to be out of the business of social issues. The only way to get out of the business of social issues is to actually say this isn't an issue, and that's what we did. But, Kevin, I mean, you're you're obviously taking a platform in the county and getting a lot of publicity off of this. Have have you gotten any feedback from the state party or from the RNC? Oh, from the state party, uh, their perspective, um, you know, they recorded in the paper today, I'll paraphrase, but it was, you know, along the lines of, you know, every uh, county central committee is an autonomous entity within the Republican Party and has the ability to do what it needs to do. Um, you know, take that a step further, you know, my perspective upon this is that, you know, we do, we're in the business of getting Republicans elected. And we're, we were failing in that business in uh, in Marin, and henceforth we needed to do what it took to get the uh, Republicans elected there. On the national side, I haven't heard a, a thing yet. I mean, it's, it's been silent. Do you expect to? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, it's you know, I, in one way, um, you know, it would be it would be good to have you know this just put up you know put to, to bed. Um, 
to say that it's not an issue. The other side of it is would be, um, well, if it doesn't come up, it really truly isn't an issue for Republicans, and that would be that would be fine as well. Because we see this as a, you know, just as we didn't want to be defined by someone outside of Marin County, you know, we don't want Marin County to be defining other counties out there or other states, whatever. Um, you know, this is a, a choice that we made for our constituency that, uh, you know, to, to say that it's not an issue for us. But, you know, Kevin, when we look at the 2012 election, you know, one of, one of, the, one of the key demographics that's been a huge money raiser inside the party is that of the log cabin Republicans, the gay sector of the Republican Party. Uh, they, they didn't seem to come out very strong for Mitt Romney. Uh, they seem to not raise the money nationally for this, but it seems that they, they're, they're looking for an organization such as the Marin County GOP to embrace the idea of stay out of our personal lives, let us have personal freedoms. Do you think that this might be something that the RNC might take into consideration as being, hey, look, we've kicked this dead horse. It's time to move on. um, That's quite possible. I mean, you know, I certainly can't speak for the the RNC, but I can speak as a a Republican to just say that, you know, individual freedom and less government is a core tenet of the Republican principles, and that's what we need to embrace. Now, obviously, you're the next county north of San Francisco, which has a huge gay population. This has got to be well-received in that part of the of, of the state for you. Is that correct? Oh, well, I, you know, from the looks of what we've seen in the media um, lately, so in San Francisco, the, the, the story only came out in today's paper this morning. And, you know, the posts I've seen up on there on the Chronicle – They've been all you know, very favorable. I think you know maybe there was one uh, that that was opposed, but you know it's hard to judge because obviously you know folks who you know really get engaged on social media and you know these sort of things, you know tend to be ones that are very passionate about the issue one direction or the other. To me, what tells me some some statistics there is you know what's the vast majority doing? I mean, if we're only hearing from a very very slim piece of this pro or con. You know, but we're not hearing from the vast majority. It tells me that the vast majority feels, hey, you know, truly this is really not an issue for us. Alan Moore, question. Yeah, yeah. No, I just wanted to congratulate you, Kevin. This is Alan Moore here. I'm uh, I'm one of the Republican voices, although I guess I'm more uh, in the moderate realm, and I've I've embraced uh, the idea of gay marriage uh, for some time, and and uh, <laughs> and happy to have uh, and happy to have as many allies as possible, which. Which is not to say that even in Mar- from Marin County, it didn't take uh, it wasn't a challenging uh, position to be more uh, aggressive on. And I'm I'm I think it's uh, indicative of what's going on around the country. But that doesn't mean that it it lacked courage. So I commend you. Well, thank you, Alan. I mean, it's uh, you know, it, and it's not just me. Uh, I appreciate you you thanking me, but you know, with my committee. That, uh, that really made the decision, and uh, you know, I stand by the efforts that they took as well, too. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Kevin, this brings up the question is, did you get any backlash from your own committee on this vote? Hey, from the committee? No, I mean, we, this was done, you know, by committee. So, you know, we had you know, we had a very frank dialogue. We did it in an executive session, so I'm, you know, unfortunately I'm unable to provide any of the specifics of the, of the debate. But you know, suffice to say, you, you see the result what came out of this, and um, you know we're happy to uh, be able to, to push this forward and get it off the table. Well, well, can can you can you tell us what was was it a unanimous decision by the executive committee? 
well, again, since it was executive session, um, you know, it was a motion, so all we needed was a, was a majority. Okay, very good. Bob Hines. Kevin, I'm also a Republican, a good Midwestern boy from Cincinnati who grew up under the tutelage of Ray Bliss, if you remember that name. And okay, I got to say that I am very pleased with, uh, with what your uh, executive committee has done. I think it's a good idea. I am one of those Republicans who have thought that the social issues that the Republican Party has, any, has embraced over the many years, in the last 30 years, has been their doom and downfall all too often. I've often thought that Lyndon Johnson, who said when he signed the Voting Rights Act that, um, you know, I have now given away the South and lost the, Repub the Democratic Party, well, the fact of the matter is all he did is saddle us with a lot of, um, of uh, bad ideas on the social concern, and quite frankly, they have been a curse, and I think, and for a long time. And I'm very pleased to see Marin County uh, do what they did. And I hope that it will be something that will help the rest of the party take a look and say, you know, it really isn't important one way or another, you know, uh, on a on a gay marriage or a gay marriage person. It's a question of, you know, do you want to be a do you, do you want to be a member of a party? who says you, you, you're a bad person, and I think that's really silly. Well, you, you know, actually, I want to I jump in on that, Kevin, is, you know, the, there are some very right-wing, call them Tea Party-ish type Republicans out there that throw the, the comment of rhino around quite a bit. Uh, are, are, you, are you fearful that this might alienate any power that you have as vice chairman of the Bay Area and having to live with that rhino monitor, and, and, and this is coming from somebody who is called a rhino weekly. <laughs> well, first off, you know, let me just say on the, on the labeling and name calling, I mean, that is nothing more than just bullying at the adult level here. Uh, they, trying to force somebody's views um, by just, you know, slapping some uh, label on them is, is ludicrous, and quite frankly, you know, I, I don't stand by that. I don't stand by that, you know, as a Boy Scout leader in terms of, you know, the, the, the troop I have and the scouts, um, you know, I will not tolerate bullying. I won't tolerate bullying. If, if I don't tolerate bullying there, I'm certainly not going to tolerate it at the Republican Party level. So for those folks who want to throw out monikers and do things like that, that is just childish, foolish behavior. You know, address the issue from a standpoint of, you know, real facts and real figures, and then we'll talk. And in this particular instance, the facts and figures do not lie for Marin County. Over 75% of the voters in 2008 rejected Prop 8. Since then, the numbers have only increased. You show in California itself, 61% of the voters favor same-sex marriage, 51% um, nationwide. The, the youth vote is just you know, through the roof in terms of in favor of same-sex marriage. And that is where we need to attract new people for, for Marin County. We only have 18.26% of the registration in the county, and it has been on a steady downward slope probably since um, the county went from Mondale. <laughs> and we we got to dig ourselves out of this hole and get rid of the stuff that is getting in the way of us being able to provide that service to the, the people of Marin County, and that service is good government. You know, we're in the business to get Republicans elected, sure, but why are we in that business? Because we're, we want to see good government, and we have been 
failing in our duty, civic duty to the uh, voters of Marin in that fact. And we got a caller on the line for you, Kevin, I believe. Caller from the 703 area code, you're on with Backroom Politics. Caller, we can't hear you. We have a bad connection. Caller? Caller, try and call in again. Oh, caller hung up. Uh, Kevin, you know, when, when you look at uh, when, you, when you look at the grand scheme of where the Republican Party is trying to go, you had a large RNC effort to try and look at how we can embrace the urban vote and those we may have alienated in 2012, i.e. Hispanics, gays, other minorities. Uh, is it your idea that this could be a jumping off point to really take that new embracement effort by the RNC and take it to the next level? Well, you know, if the RNC sees it as fit, then you know that that I think that would be refined by me. The um, you know this is what we see can do that exact same thing in Marin, and that's that's our hope. Is you know we need to have candidates, um, you know, like you said, you know, whether it be you know, Hispanics, um, you know, they'll capture Latino vote or or what demographic you're going to look at. The fact of the matter is, is that you need to have people who look like, walk like, talk like, sound like, represent the shared values and the people they want to represent. And this, I think, was a good key starting point in Marin because it is, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers show that this is something that Marin favors heavily, and it has never been an issue for our county Republican Party. So, henceforth, you know, <laughs> we're moving it off the table. Well, Denise Krepp, you had a comment. Hey, Kevin, it's Denise. How are you doing? Hey, good. How about you? Good, good. So, so now that you've uh, well, you, you, you've crossed a big hurdle here. What's the next one? What are you going to work on next? What are we going to work on next? Well, the, what we're going to work on next is focusing in on the local stuff for our county, and that is Plan Bay area is a big one for us. I'm not sure how familiar you are with with that one um, out in D.C., but it's a uh, initiative between all the nine counties to. Uh, redevelop uh, our transportation infrastructure to lower uh, air emissions, and it's, it's frankly, you know, they have a wonderful opportunity to uh, to do something to actually improve public transportation in the Bay Area. And the the, uh, the bureaucrats got a hold of this this uh, entity, and it's become nothing more than a social engineering experiment. They're starting to uh, they want to plan to have uh, high speed rail corridors and then make these high density housing areas in the, these regions, despite whether or not those regions are uh, you know, are traditionally oriented in that direction, kind of like taking a you know, farmland and saying, okay, right now we're going to put in a you know high density condos. Um, I use the the uh, comparison to uh, you know the container shipping industry, which I'm in, and that is the that in the container shipping industry we take the container to the customer. We don't have the customer move to the container, and that's kind of what Plan Bay Area does in a, in a nutshell. So that's that's our next big one we're going to tackle. And then in the, in the localized, very very specific to Marin, we've got issues of pension reform. We need to get get over um, and get through. Uh, we've got slush funds for the uh, the county commissioners. I mean, it, the the list goes on. So there's there's plenty of good stuff to work on at the local level, and we've just never been able to get a dialogue started at the table because we've always been marginalized uh, due to issues beyond our control. Kevin, you know, in the in the in the grand scheme of, of politics there in Marin County, I mean, 
it, it's always been laughed at that the GOP of Marin County is just five white guys around a table. Uh, but the yeah, reality be around a hot tub. But when when we when we look at the future going forward of the Marin GOP, it, it, do you guys have a possibility of getting an elected official in office in an area where you have only less than twenty percent of elected voters or registered voters? Uh, yeah, I think I, I firmly believe we do, and I tell you why. Um, statistically speaking, you know we've got eighteen percent of the vote. Um, however, the percentage of elected Republicans in the county is less than half of that. We're not even fully um, uh, banked up against our um, registration levels. I mean, we're even below where we, we should be. So there's plenty of room to grow there. Um, you know, by saying, you know, we're a party that matches the, uh, the face of Marin and you're electing people who are going into local jobs to represent local interests in Marin, I think, uh, you know, that, that is a good strategy for going forward. Obviously, this stuff doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, we've got a long road ahead of us to recruit new, uh, new candidates and more voters. But, you know, this is a step in the right direction. Kevin, uh you know, we, we, we talked about the, the the rhino aspect of this, but one of the things that came out in that San Francisco Chronicle article was uh, there was another chairman, basically uh, the chairman of the San Francisco County GOP, that said that, hey, all they're doing in Marin is pandering to a lost electorate. Uh, do you see what you guys are doing as pandering? I mean, you really didn't have to do this necessarily. No, I mean, we, we, we didn't have to do this, but, you know, the choice was to either die a slow death or, you know, break free from the mold and uh, and show that we can do something. And the exact quote was, you know, pandering to voters, and I don't think I – and I can tell you I don't think the Republican voters think this is the right time. I think the key part of that quote – and there's an ellipsis in there, so you don't know what, what, what got disappeared, you know, what disappeared in the saying, but – you know, pandering to the voters and the Republican voters don't think it's the right time. It's, you know, there's two different issues there. One is that the Republican voters in Marin do feel it's the right time. Um, the second part of the issue is, you know, pandering to the vote. It's not pandering to want to win an election and reach out there to uh, to draw in new support. The DTSers, when you know, it's a good California term. I'm not sure how much you get uh, back east of that, but that's the decline to states. California allows you to make no indication of your political affiliation when you register to vote, and that becomes the decline to state group or DTS. The DTSers outnumber the Republicans in Marin. I think they're at like 22 or 23 percent. They're actually the second largest quote unquote party in the county. If we want to attract people from the middle of the road, the ones that don't uh, have an affiliated with uh, either party, then we need to, you know, shift ourselves to the middle of the road to be able to, you know, demonstrate that our fiscal conservancy, our, our, you know, strong take on pensions and uh, you know, the uh, limited government as well as local government under the one Bay Area plan. Um, appeal to this middle section. I mean, we're not moving our policies there. We're opening the door to the middle to say, you know, here's everything you've been missing because this door has been shut in between you and us. Well, Kevin, again, congratulations on, on coming outside the mold. Congratulations on, on moving forward. We haven't said congratulations on your election as uh, vice chairman for the Bay Area. We'll see how that plays out. 
But uh, Kevin Carrick, chairman of the Marin County GOP, who just voted in a platform of embracing gay marriage as part of their platform. Kevin, thanks for joining us, brother. Hey, thank you all. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Justin. We'll talk soon. Uh, now it's my it's my favorite part of the show. It's tell me a story where we talk about news, innuendo, gossip, anything happening around the Beltway. By the way, I'm putting in a no hashtag uh, Carlos Danger moratorium right now. No Carlos Danger right now. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Uh, twice in the last six or seven months, I have projected that the president would approve the uh, pipeline. And I, I see in the papers today that there is an article saying there is no reason that he doesn't, everything that's been done in the administration has been done, everything is there, and there's no reason why he will not go forward. Now, I thought it would happen by now. I was wrong, but I still believe that the president is going to approve that pipeline, and hopefully he will do it soon. Okay. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Not too many weeks ago, uh, the Supreme Court uh, reduced the impacts of the, uh, of the Voting Rights Act, triggering incredible rhetoric about, about how he had destroyed the law, how this was a travesty, um, that it failed to recognize what was going on in the country and was an unmitigated disaster. There were some, we won't name names, who said the heart of the Voting Rights Act is still in place. It's Section 2. It disallows a whole host of behaviors. All it did was, was say that the mechanism to tell certain states and localities that they had to pre-clear any change, no matter how small, was changed. They said it's out of date and now unconstitutional. So what's happening now is, uh, no big surprise to, uh, to some, that the Justice Department is saying, bring to us, the Justice Department, uh, any changes that you, American people, think are in violation of the Voting Rights Act, and we'll look at them. They are already now... Uh, taking a look at the, ch the change in voter ID laws in Texas, and this is going to continue to happen. Even Al Sharpton, who was one of the loudest, loudest voices of complaint, uh, said just in the last couple of days, well, yeah, the, uh, it, they, they wounded the law, but it wasn't mortal, and uh, we're, 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 we're learning how to deal with it. My guess is that now that we know that the heart of the law really is intact, not gone, that in, in an odd way, this may make it easier for the Congress to go back, take another look, and say, can we come up with some criteria? Because all of the pressure, the screaming, and the exaggerated record uh, rhetoric has been, been proven wrong. Very good. Denise Krepp, tell me a story. Well, I went camping with my family over the weekend in... Uh, uh, is this a political story? Yes, okay. it is. All right, it, is here we go. it is. And uh, we, we were in the Shenandoah National Park, and I was throwing out uh, trash after two days of, you know, camping with two children. And the gentleman in front of me was driving a truck. And on the license plate, you know, how you can have your uh, vanity license plate, uh, it was uh, it, it said he was the son of a Confederate veteran. And um, in the sticker below, it said that uh, the South was right. And on his bicep was a very interesting-looking uh, tattoo. 
And so when, I, when I'm thinking of, of, of Alan's story, I can't help but think of what I saw this weekend. And, and, and folks, the issue and the discussion dealing with racism in the United States is not dead. Not only is it not dead, but I think it's one that we're going to be talking about politically over the next couple of years. If for no other reason than as long as we have bumper stickers and we have license plates that say that the South is right, that continues. That conversation I, will keep going. I got to. I got to jump in on that. You know, we hear this a lot. You know, coming from Georgia, at one time Georgia had a stars and bars part of their flag, and the people that were supporting it, were supporting leaving that on there. It ultimately got defeated. But there's a lot of people that say just because you are a Confederate or you are part of the Confederacy or you are a son of a Confederate grandson. The reality is it doesn't necessarily make you racist. There are people who embrace that Southern heritage. There are people that say, look, it wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. I, I, I think we continue as a American populace to say, hey, this is, in fact, you know, you know, if you wear a Confederate flag, you're a racist. You hate black people. And, or and, and let me just say this, Justin. My great-great-grandfather was the president of the Confederate Congress. Okay. So I am a granddaughter of the Confederacy. And okay. I would say very publicly that what he did was wrong. And as long as we continue to have people out there who pride themselves on what happened 150 years ago, we will continue to have the discussion on racism. We need to move on. We need to realize that sounds like a topic for people. next week. Well, uh, let me just get a word in here, because I agree with Denise that racism is alive and well, not just in the South, but all around us. And And that doesn't mean that everybody necessarily who uses a symbol is a racist. There's a lot of racism. Most there of it is, is hidden. That is not the issue on the Voting Rights Act, however, and what's happening is all the gnashing of teeth about how we had ruined the law and tossed it out is turning out not to be the case. The heart of it is still there. It's being enforced by the Justice yeah. Department. Well, as it sounds like a subject for another week, but I, I want to take that up another time. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. I just to make one comment. You know, where some people told, told me uh, around this table that nothing would change after the decision was made. And the thing that changed was every legislature that could started to put in uh, uh, laws restricting voting. And thank the good Lord that the, the Justice Department figured out what to do to, to dampen some of this stuff and, and, and have it come up before them and, and use Section 2 of the Civil Rights Act to... Uh well, good story, Carl. I will tell you right now, we will take this topic up another time. And by the way, we're going to get some of my friends from Shelley's in on that discussion. I want to call Joe Williams. Hey, uh, on behalf of Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Denise Krepp, Carl Tubin, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be here next week here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? After a conversation like we've had today, can't you see? This is the place to be. It is the place to be. Folks, we'll be here next week, 4 o'clock Eastern. We'll see you then. Take care.